I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. And joining me today is author David Ambrose, uh, author of A Place Called Home, a memoir. Award-winning child welfare advocate David Ambrose writes about his first 11 years growing up homeless in and around New York City and his subsequent years in foster care. For David and his two siblings, their mother's battle with paranoid schizophrenia brings with it poverty and instability. When he's placed in foster care, it feels at first like salvation, but soon proves to be just as unsafe for him, his burgeoning homosexuality and easy tiger for others' cruelty. In the face of this deprivation and abuse, he harnesses an inner grit to escape the all-too-familiar outcome for a kid like him. He finds hope and opportunity in libraries, schools, and the occasional kind-hearted adult. Through hard work, and unwavering resolve. He's able to get a scholarship to Vassar College, his first step out of poverty. He later graduates from UCLA Law with a vision of changing the laws that affect children in poverty. He was recognized by President Obama as an American champion of change. Welcome to the show, David. Nice to have you on. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much. uh, I'm I'm blushing. You can't tell. (laughs) Um, No, I can't. But, okay, you're the champion of change. <laughs> can't see you. You can't see me either, fortunately. But anyway, champion of change. Uh, uh, I'm assuming the book was written so that we all can become champions of change. Um, and that, uh, yeah. No, it's beautiful. I, love, I haven't heard that. That's <laughs> such a beautiful way to look at it. I, yeah, it, the idea for me is really to move people from empathy to, to take action, to do something, to lift up these kids and families out of uh, poverty and violence. Well, when you say empathy, and I think that's really critical because people somehow aren't empathetic when it comes to children who are homeless or comes to children in foster care. For some reason, we're not empathetic. We don't want to take a look at it. We're, 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 we don't want to build homes for kids We don't want to, or for families, you know, not in my backyard. It, it's an attitude um, that somehow has prevailed. And, and I don't, and is is something that it keeps us from 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 accomplishing what what you've talked about in the book and your experience. Yeah, I mean it's a really important point. I think uh, in Los Angeles, if you've ever visited, and and yes. folks may be familiar with our freeways here, uh, I I kind of think about when I'm driving down the freeway and there's a car accident, and I look over and I'm on the one hand upset for the delay, on the other hand uh, also, gosh, I wish. I wish I could help them. I hope someone helps them. And that's really how I've long felt about the state of children in this country, especially poor children and their families, because a poor family is a poor child. Somebody has to get out of the car, do the CPR, and make sure that person's okay. And I do think at our core, we are good people that want to see these kids be successful and healthy. It, it is, I think, our default that said, I think you're exactly right. That has not translated into the action necessary. In fact, the same number percentage of kids are homeless where I grew up uh, in in the 80s as there are today, and that is that is unacceptable. But David, how do you think? Is your experience? I mean, you know, as I read in your bio, I mean, you went to Vassar, you became a lawyer. Obviously, you're extremely bright, and there's something within you that. Ha- what was it in your experience that 
is either different or the same as as many of the kids who are suffering from homelessness and, and suffering in foster care as well. Well, first, I, I love your platform and, and your show, uh, A Social Worker with the Mic. My sister's a social worker, and I want to acknowledge the role that a lot of good people played in my life. I think the way that we, the way that I think about um, what is it in myself or my siblings who also have succeeded with advanced degrees and healthy families. I think the question is really when, when an individual, when you, when I, when whoever's listening closes their eyes, if they were to have to put their child in foster care, what does that system look like? And we need to build that. Every one of us should want to build that because God forbid what got me to where I'm at today is so uniquely, uh, uh, a concussion, a, a collision of circumstance and opportunity and random chance, and then some innate characteristics that I had no control over. I think we have to design a system not for the David Ambrose out there, but for all the children that need help in achieving their full uh, potential. And that system has to be way more robust than what I experienced growing up and what I experienced as a foster father recently. You know, one of the things you mentioned, it was actually, I think, a, a symposium that I had listened to you, uh, that, that uh, you were one of the main speakers. And one of the things you said is that that having a home in the United, here, at least in our country, is a right. And I guess that struck me. It's it's not a privilege. It's a right, just like health care should be a right. And um, it would kind of, it's, isn't it, it's important to start with that premise that everybody has a right to a home. Absolutely. You know, I've been lucky in my life. I was appointed to serve as the head of the planning commission here in Los Angeles, which oversees issues around real estate development, housing development, homelessness, et cetera, home sharing. And I remember one time on the commission and an individual approach to object to a homelessness shelter and transition housing for, for women and children. And I was sitting up there, the president of this planning commission, in this, this beautiful chamber, and I had to listen to one person after another degrade the humanity of homeless people. And I, I broke. I called a interruption. I spoke up, and I came out as a homeless person for really the first time in my life so publicly. And I just admonished the individual and said, if you're trying to convince me that my mother should have had an abortion, which is really what he was saying, in order to vote against this project, you need to stop because I'm not the only formerly homeless person on this commission. In my heart, I truly believe that housing is a human right, uh, especially for children, especially for children and families. And it is to our own detriment that we collectively don't do that. We pay now morally and long-term economically by our lack of full investment in these kids yeah, I, I think that's, I'd like to talk about that because I think that, and, and that's something else I think you mentioned when when I was listening to your, uh, listening to the, I think I was listening to actually one of the commissions that you were on. Um, you're, oh. Yeah, uh, but really presenting to people what happens if we don't do something. We're always talking about what we should do and we should do this and we should do that. And people like you just gave the example are balking, but we can't do that. And we don't have enough money and blah, blah, blah. You can get all kinds of excuses, right? But what are the consequences mm-hmm. of not helping these children? Selfishly, what are the consequences yeah. for the society, for the community, for families, other families, not for, you know, so that's, a, I think, a, a real 
focus that we don't really hone in on. Yeah, I truly believe we we either pay now or we will pay exponentially more later. And the bill later is not just economic, it's our it's how we perceive ourselves, it's our values. We sent a person to the moon. We can solve this problem. It is not rocket science to support families and children with a fully robust social welfare safety net. The consequences are quite plain. More foster kids will go to jail than go to college. Sit with that. How are we okay with that? We have taken it upon ourselves as a country to break up families, and you're a professional. We should sometimes. However, that is not the end of our responsibility. And if more foster kids are going to prison, we have a problem. We are paying for that, both economically and morally. We never allow them to contribute fully to society. We are too easy. It's too easy for us to pass on uh, not wealth, but poverty, violence, addiction. That's what we facilitate. And I don't think it's our best selves. I don't think it's what all of us want. The challenge we have to do, though, is to take that desire, passive as it is right now, and turn it into real political action. That folks every day think to themselves, what can I do? I'm, I'll just say this. I, I'm struck in Los Angeles quite often. People rant about homelessness. And they talk about cleaning it up. And I think about the 11 years where I would have been cleaned up and often was pushed out of places. And the inhumanity of that leaves scars. And I think the cost is not just economic, but is that who we want to be, especially for children? And I don't think it is. One of the things you talk about is ways to encourage more educated middle-class families to foster. Let's talk about that. Mm-hmm. How do you do that? I'm, I'm glad you, you shared that. You know, the, the book is to inspire people to do something, and the afterword is what I think we can do. And I focus on foster care, although the book is really about all these systems of poverty, because it's a unique moment where we can, we can stop this inheritance of violence with kids. And I focus on foster parents, biological parents, foster kids, social workers. And I think the reason I brought the foster parents to the table, and you're, you're a professional and an expert, if you're in a home with someone with a college degree, for instance, so if someone in your house has a college degree, you're 90% more likely to get one yourself. So when we as individuals close our eyes and we think to ourselves, where would I want to put my kid? What does that home look like? Probably someone with a college degree. This is in no way to disrespect the foster parents that have stepped up and opened their homes today. And they are disproportionately not wealthy. Thank God for them. However, as we think about solutions, we need more people with more resources and more political power to take the responsibility that they have and also shoulder it. Take some of these kids into their homes, find out what the problems are, push our political system to address them. And the way that we do that for middle class and and upper middle class income people is we look at what are their concerns. Why aren't they fostering? Very simple reasons. Retirement, college costs for their kids, health care. Let's address that. Let's make them federal employees for pension. We're not talking about millions of people. We're talking about tens of thousands. 
Let's give them health benefits as a federal employee. Let's give them free college after five years of service for their biological children. Let, let us acknowledge that a lot of people would do this if we could allay some of their day-to-day concerns that grind them, that hold them back. And I think if we did simple things of that nature, we would bring in a fresh crop of folks to join the people already on the front lines of this work. You're on the front lines of this work, and, and, and you're in California. So all of those things that you mentioned, when you bring these things up, when you're trying to do this, you're trying to what – ha- what, what's the feedback? What's the pushback that you get? Well, you know, I will tell you, um, folks are quick to point out the flaws in all the ideas that people put forward to fix problems, and I own it. I fully acknowledge that every idea comes with costs, not just economic, but implementation and the challenges that we have. One person once told me, uh, a very significant player in foster care in California said to me, David, the house is on fire and you want us to figure out uh, paint colors. And the challenge I find is the house is never not going to be on fire. And so, yes, we have to think beyond the emergency of the moment. The pushback I get pretty consistently is the focus on the poverty of resources that the system has. And that is accurate. It is accurate. It is underfunded for the task we put before it. We don't support social workers. My sister's a social worker for many years. We don't support her. Uh, We underpay her. She is unable to live in areas where where she might be able to be more effective as a social worker, just live far away. So I think the system will never not be in a state of perceived crisis, and we have to be okay with that. That's usually the pushback I get. The other reality is all the players in the system, I don't believe have ill intent individually, but collectively, all of us focus on ourselves, even if part of our calculation is the job. The reality is, is I'm worried about paying my mortgage. I'm worried about my son. I'm worried about my saving for retirement. All the players in the system have their motivations, which include the family and the child that they're supposed to serve. But I think collectively, that, uh, that multiple, um, multiple desires and wishes add up to a place where kids are not always the first priority. And when I begin to advocate for these changes, I think people see a threat to, uh, a, to their needs, whatever they may be. The reality is, is we have to close our eyes, think about the child that is ours and what system we would want to put them in and create that. Nothing stands in our way. All these perceived problems are perceptions. They're not reality. These are not the laws of physics. There are laws and we can change them. We can change them. And I think one of the other things that you've said is that it's not a quick fix. And I think we always, we, the collective, we, we want a quick fix. We want it, you know, well, let's solve the problem. Mm-hmm. And we can't do that, that it takes time. It's an evolution. It's a process. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, it took, it takes a lot of time to get where we are. And it's going to take a lot of time to, to, uh, to fix the problem. And it's not an immediate fix. Mm-hmm. And I, people, I think that's kind of a mindset too, um, that, mm-hmm. yeah. Absolutely. And, and that's okay. You know, I'm saving for retirement. Yeah. I'm, I'm in my 40s. And I know that it's going to be a long haul, that, that I'm going to get to a place where over the years I'll be able to rely on that. Change comes slow and then quick and then not at all in different cycles. And sometimes change comes at the end of a lawsuit, which is too often the case in foster care. And policy made from that lawsuit sometimes is ill-suited for the larger system. But what we can't do is take our eyes off the prize, because if we do not serve these children, 
they will end up on our other systems, be they jail, be they younger kids with children, be they welfare, whatever it is, we need to realize that we have to be in it for the long haul challenge to reform and fix and replace as needed. I, I had a, uh, when my kids were growing up, I had a, a babysitter, a, an older woman who she 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 would say to me, well, you know, all my kids are grown up. They graduated from high school. Why do I have to still pay school taxes? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, it's sort yeah. of what we're talking about. And, you know, and I tried to explain to her, it's in all of our best interest to place to that school taxes, even after your kids have graduated, et cetera, et cetera. But anyway, yeah. um, that was a constant question, which kind of this sort of mm-hmm. reminding me of in terms of our conversation. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. So. No, I, I, you're so right, and yeah. your, your answer's right. I mean, it's the tragedy of the commons, I think it's called, in, in economics. Um, you know, I think it's beautiful about this country is that we work together to do big things, and there's this been this, of late in my later life so far, it's been this collective shrug that we can't do big things together, and we can do big things together. And those big things, when you get up close, you realize that they were never big at all, that people like my family living in bathrooms in public places in the Port Authority bus station down by the Knickerbocker Arena in Albany. That is not okay. That is not okay. And I may not be your child. That may not be your child. That may not be your sister that's suffering from mental illness. But they're our neighbor. And it's not right. And we know it's not right. And that, that knowledge, that feeling, is something that we need to put into practice and agree that we want schools that are fully funded, even if our kids are done, even if we don't have kids, because those kids are Americans. Those kids are our neighbors. Those kids are going to invent the next thing that make our lives better and our children's lives better and our country better. How do we get more um, individuals like you? Do you do a lot of, or do you do, are you mentoring young people to sort of follow in your footsteps and do what you're doing? Because that's my question. You know, I started, <laughs> I, I appreciate that question. I, <laughs> I, um, I, I tend to cry a lot, especially when I hear <laughs> kids' stories. And um, yet that's exactly what renews me. I, I often meet with foster kids on one-on-one. I do mentor a number of foster kids right now, and I've always done that. My foster son actually started as my mentee, and I just fell head over heels in love with this young man. Um, I do. And I also realize that I am, I think of my life as some sort of mix of Forrest Gump, hillbilly elegy and, and intersecting with precious. And <laughs> that has allowed me to have the connections, capabilities, the skills to, to write a book, to talk to people in media, to, uh, work at a company like Amazon in their corporate social responsibility area. All of those things, in addition to the one-on-one, are super important. In my book, I list something like 40 people that are emancipated from foster care, were adopted out of the system, and the names just continually shock people. You know, Steve Jobs, adopted, Marilyn Monroe, Babe Ruth, you know, these names that we all know, uh, but we don't understand that they came from this system. So I do think there is the opportunity for foster kids to give back, and I'm, I'm trying to do that. But it may not be in one-on-one service, and that's okay. I, I still today, you know, I, I cry when I talk about my life. I have a lot of latent trauma, 
And that's okay. Weakness is a superpower. And sharing that with kids gives them the space to do what they need to do, which is mourn and move on. So I try and do that component. It nourishes me, and I hope it helps the young person. But then I also try and look the gift horse squarely in the face and uh, use the privilege I've been granted and I've carved out to make policy change. And I'll give you one example of policy change. I worked at a LA City College Foundation and I was the director there and I started the first guarded college program at a community college in our, in our lovely state. And I remember the foster kids kept dropping out and I had done all this work to start this program and I'm like, why are you leaving? And they couldn't get the basic classes they needed to qualify for financial aid. The basic classes fill up pretty quickly. So this amazing person in Karen Bass and others helped us change the law in the state of California so foster kids could enroll early. And through that one policy change, thousands and thousands of foster kids at Cal State Universities, University of California system schools, as well as community colleges, have one more barrier removed from their lives. That's not because I mentored one-on-one. That's because I also looked at my experience as a tool that I might use to help other kids at scale. So I think both things are important, using our experience to change policy and when able to intervene in the life of an individual child. Yeah. So it's not just one tool. As you say, it's a myriad of tools that we have to use. But in reading your book, one of the things that you also, it seems you were the responsible or you felt responsible. Your mother was a as I said in the beginning, schizophrenic, psychotic, uh, and also abusive, but you were the responsible one, that you felt responsible for her and for your siblings. Um, and that sort of runs, I, I, to mm-hmm. me, that, that's sort of a, I don't know if you call it a theme, but that runs through the whole book, you know, mm-hmm. David, the responsible mm-hmm. one. Yeah, you know, I think... It's a, it's, a great, it's a great point. It's a great observation. I think when you're in the middle of the ocean in a life raft, even if it has holes, you stay in the life raft. Um, and that was my family. For all of our problems, including my mom's mental illness, that was my life raft. And I had to do everything I could to keep that thing afloat, not just for myself, but because I love these people. The first part of the book opens uh, when I'm around four and we've been cleaned out of one of the public places we slept in, on Christmas around then. And we're, we're basically dying from exposure. It is so cold. And we end up at a men's shelter because there wasn't a lot of women's and kids shelter at the time. And we were given a cot after my mom badgered her way in. And I talk about the dog pile of my family leaning back into this pile of people that had not bathed in a very long time, people that were covered in lice and face herpes and all the other things you see on the homeless that are ill-treated. And my mom stood above me and, and through her mental illness, sometimes emerged this other person that was the woman who would have been. And she looked at me and she said, is this what you want? And it's one of my first memories. And I didn't really understand it, but it was the first time I thought to myself, I have a choice. Okay, I have a choice. And no, I don't want this. Mental illness, as we all know, especially yourself with your expertise, mental illness is too often a theme in the families that we serve in foster care and programs that deal with poverty. And it is untreated. We are beginning to come to terms with that, but it remains this third rail. And that shame has a cost to the individual 
that is living on our streets talking to themselves in ill health. That is a cost to their families that struggle to care for them. And that is a cost to their children, which too often end up in different systems, inheriting the poverty and violence of their ill parent. So I did feel responsible, but it's also a responsibility that I needed to survive. And that ultimately here I am. It is a burden that no child should have, but it's one that too often are thrust upon us like it was for me and my siblings. Well, you not only survived, you thrived. Um, and uh, the book, you, know, you talk about crying. I was crying when I was reading your memoir, and I recommend yeah. this book to, every, <laughs> to everyone. It's, uh, I mean, um, it really tells the story. Um, and we're t- I'm talking to the author, David Ambrose, and the title of the book is A Place Called Home, a memoir. So, David, we only have a couple minutes left. Give us website and our websites to go to uh, more information about the book and also more information about uh, your work and what you're doing. Wonderful. Thank you for that chance. Uh, yeah. It comes out on 9-13, September 13th. You can pre-order it on my website, www.davidambrose.com or on Amazon, where I happen to work. Uh, the Audible book also comes out, the audio book. So I'm excited about that. I read it myself. And on the website, my website, davidambrose.com, is three different tabs, one of which is activism. And I encourage folks, in addition to buying the book, to look at that tab and click it. Because what I've tried to lay out there is a, is a buffet of different levels of engagement that you might partake in. All of us, at any level, at any amount of time you might have to give to the a cause. So check out davidambrose.com for information on how you can get involved and also how to purchase the book. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show today. I'm so grateful. Thank you for doing what you do. I'm a fan and it's terrific to have our community on air like this. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. 